0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one
2: crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
3: of a detour.
0: hello and welcome to the history extra podcast from bbc history magazine britain's best-selling history magazine I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation with the author and cultural historian Colin Grant. Colin's latest book is Homecoming, Voices of the Windrush Generation, which explores the experiences of West Indian immigrants arriving in Britain in the 1940s. Charlotte Hodgman, editor of BBC History Revealed magazine, met Colin to find out more. Please be aware that this episode does contain offensive language as part of the discussion about historical racism.
2: Colin, thank you for coming to to chat to us in Bristol today. Um, probably, the best way to start might be to talk about why you wanted to write the book, and um, you know, sort of where that idea came from. Mm.
1: My parents are Jamaican. They came here in 1959 from the capital, Kingston. And my father's a merchant seaman. My mother was a reasonably wealthy middle-class lady in Jamaica who didn't know how to boil an egg when she left home (laughs) because she had servants who did did such things. And they had a very strange transformation. They both ended up working on the production line at Vauxhall Motors. And about uh, seven or eight years ago, I wrote a book about them called Bag Eye at the Wheel. And Bag Eye was my father's nickname. He had very baggy eyes. And it struck me that when I was researching that book, I interviewed a lot of Caribbean people from that generation, from the Windrush generation. And their stories hadn't really been told. And I knew when I was growing up as a child in Luton, where I'm from, that these people were so colourful. They were like characters out of a Damon Runyon novel. They're like Mm. guys and dolls characters. (laughs) And I wanted to populate my previous book with them, which I did. So I was wanting to actually to write a follow-up to that book and to make it a much larger book, to go around the country and find similar characters. In a way, I also wanted to populate my book with characters who were fictionalised characters in the book by Sam Selvon called Lonely Londoners, which is a lovely book from 1957, which charts the early Caribbean migration. And I often wonder to myself, what would have become of those characters from 1957 if they were around today? Mm -hmm. So in a way, with this new book, I went in search of them and found them from Bristol to Luton to Bradford to Birmingham to Leeds to Manchester. Yeah. And um, they were all as rich and as vibrant as I remember those characters around my father and mother were back in the 60s and 70s.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've got a real mix of people in, in the book and some lovely memories. Um, what was it like me sort of talking to people? Were people quite open about their experiences? No,
1: not at all. I think people don't really realised to the degree to which a lot of the Caribbean people who came in that generation were very conservative with a small c. They're very private people. And there's a phrase which you'll hear up and down the country in every West Indian household. "Me don't let people chat my business, which means I don't want people to know anything about me. Mm. I'm going to be reticent. I'm going to be private. I'm not going to reveal anything of myself. In a way, I also believe that's partly why they had these nicknames, to keep people at bay. If you didn't know someone's real name, Mm -hmm. you couldn't really get to know them very very well. But also they were superstitious. And I think it's true of very many migrants who come to a foreign place. They're rather nervous, having been so bold to make this huge journey, this huge adventure 4,000 miles away. They're rather intimidated by the surroundings in which they find themselves. And so they keep themselves to themselves. And so initially, I had real trouble encouraging people to speak they're elderly now mm. a lot of the people I spoke to were in the 80s and 90s and when you get older as I'm becoming so myself a kind of veneer of respectability descends over you and you forget what kind of rambunctious roustabout you might have been in the mm. past and you cloak that in a kind of This nice old avuncular (laughs) fellow hasn't done anything terrible in his life. Um, So it took a while for for them to settle in and relax and to be able to reveal their stories. It was also complicated by the fact that many of them, many of the people that I interviewed uh, had their adult children with them. Right. And they're all in their 40s and 50s. And they're much more savvy about broadcasting and publishing and a little bit nervous about Exploitation, in all honesty, wondering about what might be done with their stories. So I had to disabuse them. Mm. And once they were on board, it was far easier. But also, and I've said this before, most recently, I've likened my little adventure around this country, finding these characters to someone going on an antiques roadshow. So, you know, that program Antiques Mm. Roadshow, where people bring along antiques, vintage items they've had in their attic for a while. And it's only then, when they're at the show, that their real worth is realised. Yeah. And when I was going around this country, talking to people, I realised that their stories were like these wonderful, precious jewels, mm-hmm. these antiques which hadn't really been heard before. And I was going to dust them down and reveal them as, as many people as possible. And so that became the case. It also, you have to, when you embark on this sort of process, allow for people's own rhythm. Don't hurry people, especially if they're elderly; they have their own pace, and I have my own pace my i mean i'm in fact, it was beneficial to me that I am of Caribbean ancestry anyway. My father, for instance, had a very slow walk; he was just just faster than slow, <laughs> and so i'm I'm attuned to that way of being, so I would sit with them and I would patiently yeah. hear their stories over two and three hours, and eventually sometimes the children, the adult children, would turn to me after these two or three hours and say, I've never heard those stories before, or I've never heard that story in such detail before. But it's rather moving and poignant also because a lot of the time people were being asked by me to travel back in their heads to 40, 50 years ago. And I never realised the degree to which leaving home, travelling 4,000 miles away as a teenager, as many of them were, with no real expectation of returning home, just how much trauma that would have involved. And in a way, they were having to um, reveal themselves and reveal their trauma as we spoke.
2: Yeah, and may- maybe something they hadn't really spoken about previously.
1: Yeah, because also uh, many of the men, especially, were rather stoical and had that kind of front. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they would talk about the fact that the last time they saw their father, it was on the harbour, Kingston Harbour, And he was waving goodbye. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that they would always, when they came here, they would, in Jamaican parlance, they would work some money, which means to save and prosper, and then they would eventually return. But sometimes, by the time they'd saved up enough money to return, their parents had died, and so there were quite quite a few tears um, in the course of these interviews when people reflected on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, as you say, it was an inc- it's an incredible move to make.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, maybe take us back to because n- 1948 is kind of the time um, when the the uh, the Nationality Act came in, mm-hmm. um, which kind of confirmed that you know all British subjects wherever they were could come and and, and live in Britain. Absolutely. Um, so. You know, why were people so keen to make this move over to, you know, what, what perhaps they would refer to as the motherland?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the first thing to say is that we get a bit stuck on the Windrush. Yeah. And the Windrush, I think, is cemented into our, our social consciousness because it came in the year of this great act, this new change in the legislation. So people wanted to see how the change in the Immigrant Act uh, the Nationality Act would impact on mm. people's arrival here. That's why we focus, I think, on the Windrush. But people were coming before. Even the year before, there was the SS Almanzora, and there was a boat, a ship called the SS Ormond, which came in 1947. And I know that because a friend of mine, Hannah Lowe, this wonderful London Caribbean poet, Wrote a book of poems called *Ormond*, based on her father's journey. Her father was on that ship, and she imagined what other characters might be on that ship—a boxer, a chef, <laughs> a, a, yeah. a bus driver. Um, so they were there before. But equally, in 1947 or 48, or even before, I think people had a real sense that they were British. There was no Jama- Jamaican passport. In the 40s, there was no Trinidadian passport. There were British passports. And everything revolved around Britain. If you can imagine, my mother, born in 1932, when she went to school, all the books were imported from Britain. My mother knows how to fold the Union flag. She knows how to recite verbatim uh, Keats, Shelley, Wordsworth. I remember as a child being transfixed by her on a Saturday morning, she'd be cleaning in the house, reciting <laughs> Gunga Ding by Kipling. Wow. The, yeah. verbatim. She knew every single word. When they went to the cinema, in the Rialto Cinema in Kingston, Jamaica, in the 1940s, at the beginning of a screening, the audience would stand up to sing the British National Anthem. At the end of the screening, the audience would stand up to sing the British National Anthem. When I interviewed a man called George Mangar from Guyana, from British Guyana, now Guyana, he talked about the fact that when he came to this country and he went to the cinema and at the end of the film <laughs> he stood up as the credits rolled and he looked around and everybody was seated, he couldn't believe it. He thought, what's wrong with these people? So they were actually very, very patriotic.
2: Yeah, point had... more so than actually people living in Britain. Yeah,
1: I mean, the, there was no local literature. Mm. There was no real local culture that, didn't go through the prism of being British. They were Anglophiles or Afro-Saxons. And so the, the, the notion of coming to England was very, very attractive, very, very exciting, because they'd read about Oxford Circus. They read about Trafalgar Square. Just imagine the romance of those names. There's a man in the book called Wallace Collins, who came from Jamaica in the 50s. And what often happened when people arrived, they were so excited to say we have reach, as we say in Jamaica. They would send photographs back home to the folks who were already very excited about what news would be coming forth from the motherland and send postcards. And this man, Wallace Collins, went to, to, to Trafalgar Square. I know I can't swear, so I won't swear. <laughs> he went to, to, to Trafalgar Square and a pigeon um, perched on his head and dropped something on his head. Yeah. And he wrote back home really excitedly, I am making history. I
2: thought that, that was one of my favourite stories in the book, definitely. Yes. Um, so they,
1: they thought they were making history because nobody from their family maybe would have been there before. Yeah. They were going on this amazing adventure. They were going to the seat of empire, to the heart of the metropolis, and they were going to be rewarded in terms of the possibilities that opened up before them. And also it has to be said, Charlotte, that um, things were rough in the Caribbean There were many floods, hurricanes, typhoons, crops been wiped out in the 40s. Unemployment was very high in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. Um, I start my feature uh, with a story about a man called Sam King, who's coming back from serving in the RAF on a ship. In fact, he's on the Al Manzora, coming back in 47. And he sees, as the ship pulls into harbour, grown men diving into the sea to collect pennies and shillings that have been thrown overboard by tourists as a kind of entertainment to see how how well these people can swim. But it's very perilous. And he thought to himself, I can't do that. I can't live in such a temporary way, depending on pennies and shillings that might come my way through charity. I will go to the motherland. And so many people, I think, of that era, if they had a bit of energy, a bit of chutzpah, a bit of drive, drama, a little bit of luck, and a little bit of money, Mm because it was expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sam King had to sell three cows to get the fare to come to Britain. His family didn't have more than six cows, so it's a huge investment. And it was said, actually, that these young people, they're all young, the average age of the people on board the Windrush is 24, but many of the people I interviewed were teenagers. Mm -hmm. It was said that there's so much excitement that they'd caught this bug. It was called England fever. I have England fever. And they had to leave. They needed to to, to act on this fever. And the joke often went round all of the islands, all of the regions in the Caribbean, that so many people were leaving that the last person out should turn off all the lights.
2: <laughs> um, so it must have been, I mean, the, the, I mean, the trip over took, on by boat took about a couple of weeks, didn't it? Yeah. So there must have been sort of mounting excitement. But oh, yeah. what happened when they actually arrived? It wasn't
1: quite what they were... Well, initially, yeah. it might have been, actually. Initially, I spoke to some lovely people who uh, talked about how their ideas were reinforced oh, in okay. their first days of arrival. Yeah. So there's a woman who talks about the fact that she didn't didn't know where she was going. She went to the to the YMCA, or wanted to go to the YMCA, and she was asking a policeman, which, you know, which is what she read was supposed <laughs> to do. And as she was asking this policeman, another person from that ship she just come off, who's another migrant, says, Where are you going? She said, I've got nowhere to go. So she went with this woman to um to Brixton. And the policeman interrupted, and said, Well, do you really want to go there? Give me the address. Mm-hmm. The next day that policeman went to that address to check on this newly arrived migrant to see that she was okay and equally my uncle vivian wellington adams (laughs) tells me that when he arrived in the early 60s he arrived by plane he was transfixed by the notion of england as it was revealed to him through ealing comedies you're probably too young to remember either <laughs> comedies. But anyway, these, these, these wonderful series of comedies in the 40s and the 50s with a kind of wonderful cast of characters, very quirky, eccentric English people. One of them was Hattie Jakes, and Kenneth Williams was another. And she often played nurses, Hattie mm. Jakes. And um, my uncle Viv says that when they arrived at Gatwick Airport, and by that stage in the 60s, it was like a little village with no motorway there. And they got into the car and they were driving along, going to head to Luton where they were going to live. And the first person they saw on a bicycle upright, bobbing up and down through the lanes, was a woman wearing a nurse's (laughs) uniform. And my brother, my uncle said to his brother, look, Hattie Jakes. (laughs) So, yeah, initially they were enthused that everything seemed to be Mm. as it should be. But what they didn't understand was that there was still quite a lot of antipathy towards black people there was a survey done and which i report about in my book in 1939 a survey done by mass observation this research organization into what white english people thought of negroes that was the word mm. that was used in the, the day black people and it wasn't very complimentary and so they were surprised i think that they weren't ultimately very very welcome by people people were very guarded very suspicious um but also just very foreign to them. Some of these people, when they came to this country from the Caribbean, they were lucky in that they had been shown a booklet. So very many organisations, like the BBC, produced these booklets to give people an idea about what to expect. One of the booklets produced by the BBC uh, World Service was called Going to Britain, Mm. and it gave you some instructions about what to look out for. If you see one or two people in a store or a shop standing one behind the other in a line, that is a queue. Mm-hmm. And your place in that queue is Z at the back of the queue. If someone says to you in the morning, how do you do? The answer is, how do you do? <laughs> so they were given this kind of entrees into what to expect and how to behave. But uh, fundamentally, though, um, the, the kind of the coalface of the people who they had to deal with was not very pleasant because landlords weren't very pleasant and employers were not very pleasant in the very beginning. And um, it's become a kind of cliche now, this phrase that was written in little cards and windows as people looked for accommodation. The phrase was, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, no gypsies. And um, I'd forgotten, or rather I hadn't really interrogated what it must be like to see that again and again and again. And there's a woman called Waverney Bushell in the book, a lovely woman from Guyana. She's 92 now. She's a teacher, was a teacher, and one of the first educational psychologists, black psychologists in this country. And she said that she would send word in advance. If she saw an advert, she'd send word in advance to the landlord that she was black so that she wouldn't waste her or their time because she would be refused so often. And she tells me that till today, she saw these cards again and again, till today... She can't mount the steps to knock on the door of a stranger's house if she suspects the person who will open the door is white. So the trauma is buried deep into her soul. And I was wanting to do that. I wanted to get to the to the, to the the essence of what it was to be humiliated on a daily basis. Because I think that people don't really understand the degree to which people are very prideful in the Caribbean. My father had this phrase, um, show your best face to the world. Uh, And this is true of very many Caribbean people. If you think about the images of people coming off that windrush ship in their zoot suits and their fedoras, they were advised to wear casual clothes. But no, they wanted to dress beyond distinction. They wanted to show people the way that they believe themselves to be with respect. Mm -hmm. The most important word in the Jamaican lexicon is respect. And so to be sown disrespect uh, by employers, by landlords, was very damning. Was very
2: and constant, wasn't it? Yeah, just over and over again. Um, yeah,
1: and what I didn't really understand because I understood this, and as as I was growing up in Luton, you know, you'd hear these stories again and again. I didn't really understand that it was universal. Mm. And one of the great things about writing oral history is that you take these individual stories and by repetition you multiply, you amplify what it is that you've been told. And so it becomes a kind of rolling, unequivocal ball of truth, a thunder of truth. Um, So that was true again and again. But I really loved the uh, Caribbean approach to hardship and to slights. So for instance, there are many, many slights shown to them when they were trying to find employment. But they would um, repel the slight. So there's a man called Mr. Johnson who talks about going to find employment and he'd he'd get there and the the potential employer would say, oh, sorry, Mr. Johnson. Oh, you just (laughs) missed that job. You just a minute too late. I'm so sorry. Mm. And Mr. Johnson said, boy, the Englishman is the kindest man in the world when he's telling you no So they had kind of humor, which they used to protect themselves from these slights, from these uh, injuries. I mean, we talk a lot these days about so-called microaggressions. These people were suffering macroaggressions on a daily basis, but they worked out strategies about how to get around it. They took things on the chin, they pulled up their collar, Charlotte, and they walked on. And good for them.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, they didn't really even have the support of the government because um, yeah. you know, even while Windrush was was sailing across to to Britain, Clement Attlee was trying to get it diverted. They they didn't expect, did they, that these it would be people from the West Indies who would be coming to Britain.
1: I didn't expect them to stick and stay. No. I think they thought they would be here for one bad winter and then they would turn on their heels. Yeah. But, yeah, as you say, as the ship was steaming towards Britain, there were politicians writing to Adley saying, we don't think it's such a good idea. What's it going to do to our culture? Mm. You know, it's, it's going to create um, unrest, disharmony. Um, this is not a great idea at all. We must put an end to it right from the word go. Yeah. So, yeah, even at that level, the, there were discussions about... Um, how they could introduce their kind of hostile environment from the word go, really, make it unattractive to people. They were trying to make it unattractive in subsequent years for people to leave. They were making it very difficult for people to get their passports stamped. They were being actively discouraged. What's really weird, though, is that there was a real requirement for this workforce. Uh, After the Second World War, Britain was bombed out. There were mountains of rubble everywhere. And in 1947, Winston Churchill pleaded with the half a million people who had put in applications to emigrate to Canada, to Australia, to New Zealand, to South Africa. These young white British people were leaving. Half a million of them left in in the 10 years after 1948. And in a way, they were replaced by West Indians, Irish... Indians, yeah. Pakistan, displaced Europeans. So they were needed.
2: Yeah, and also not to forget that you know, thousands of these people volunteered to fight in the war itself. Absolutely,
1: they were very patriotic. And Ooh. as as I mentioned in my piece, Sam King was not alone. There were thousands of people who came and joined the Royal Air Force and, and got a taste of what it was to be really British and were proud to have done their bit in the fight against Nazi Germany.
0: still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: But equally, these Caribbean people felt in a limbo, these adults felt in a limbo, because when they do go back now, they're not really considered to be Caribbean anymore. They're they're British. We don't always realise
3: just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast.
1: Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches.
2: But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour.
2: Um, I mean, you've got, you include a lot of um, kind of experiences of of these people in in the book. Did any sort of stand out to you in particular or anything surprise you? um?
1: Yeah, I never really realised the degree to which the children were absent from the story. So typically these young people, if they were married, they could afford their own passage, man and wife, wife and man, but they couldn't afford the passage for the one or two children they may have had in the Caribbean. So they would leave them behind. They would leave them in the care of their grandparents. So that was an emotional wrench. Mm -hmm. Um, And after a while, they said they would soon come for them. They would send for them. They would send for the children. But it might take years. And in the intervening years, these children formed great attachments with their grandparents. And in their minds, their grandparents were their real parents. So when the time arrived now for them to leave after five years and go and join their parents in England, there were several things that happened. A, there was the added trauma of being wrenched from their grandparents, whom they thought were real parents. There was the bereft grandparents who left on their own now. And when they came to England, often the parents in England had started another family. They would have one or two other children. So they were coming into this family unit, and they were, like in Jamaican parlance, the outside child who wasn't necessarily all that welcome. And there was friction, there was tensions, there was difficulty of bonding. Mm. But also there was regret and there was shame, there was embarrassment. Some of the women I spoke to especially uh, were kind of traumatised by the fact that they had to leave their children behind. They made the calculation that uh, for their material wealth they would do this Mm. at the expense of their emotional wealth perhaps, but the material was important to them. Um, A woman called Rune Kublau from British Guiana said that she had to leave three boys behind. They were uh, aged six months to five years, I believe. And when they came, it was difficult, that uh, reunion. And she says again, till today, she regrets those missing five years. She yearns for those lost five years. Mm. And what she did and what she still does today is she just hugs them as much as she can <laughs> make up for she the lost time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely so that surprised me but also again with the kind of imagery of the windrush and the focus on the men i was surprised by the women's stories because even on that ship where we see in the path in news and we see the stills it's mostly men in fedoras and zoot suits and overcoats coming off the ship's on that ship on that first so-called first ship the Windrush there were 200 women Mm. on that ship and I loved talking to the women especially I made a a note of this actually because well I spoke to more women than men partly because the women had outlived their partners but partly because they're more generous with their anecdotes they're more likely to have interrogated the interior of their lives and they're more likely to feed me Charlotte (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> After three hours, I'd be interviewing uh, some of these men. I'd be on the floor. My my I'm my starving. mouth is dry, but as soon as I went to interview the women, even before I turned on my recording machine, you know, out would come the Akin saltfish, uh, <laughs> and you know they treated me like a, a long lost son, oh. and and that was lovely as well because actually when I think about it, these people are like my my relatives. Mm. A lot of them, you know, in our culture, in, in the West Indian culture, you're parents friends are your uncles and your aunts um and so i did feel that this is a kind of a homecoming for me as well and and a kind of a remembrance of a a lost time yeah and that was lovely actually
2: Uh, i mean one of the the particular concerns of the time was um interracial relationships wasn't it and and there was a lot of fear around um sort of you know, men from the West Indies. Sex. <coughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. Ultimately,
1: that's what it boils down to. Uh, yeah, so I've got lots of stories of women who are brave enough to go to a dance and dance with a black <laughs> man. God forbid. Yeah. Even my mother-in-law was one of them, actually, uh, Hilary Alderson, who talks about going to the majestic ballroom in Leeds. Um, and she was rather tall and is rather tall and uh, often was rather off-putting to some of these smaller Englishmen. It <laughs> would <laughs> often have to sort of wait for a brave person, a brave yeah. soul, to come and tap her on the shoulder. And uh, one of these balls, a a black man came and tapped her on the shoulder and asked her to dance. And Hilary, who's the sweetest woman in the world, said that um, she thought, hmm. She didn't want to hurt his feelings. She didn't really want to dance, but she didn't want to hurt his feelings. So she did accept his offer to dance. Mm. And she said all her friends were a gog. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. She, <laughs> she, 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 she's dancing with a b- 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 black man. <laughs> um, so that 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 model was repeated up and down the country. And i got some lovely interviews with people who talked about the fact that they not only went on to dance with black men, they ended up marrying them. Mm. Sometimes they were then ostracized by their own family for having done so. Ostracised by their friends as well. Uh, There's a woman called Dorothy Lee who talks about, this is up in the Midlands, who talks about the rarity of these interracial marriages. And she went into the registry office with her her husband. There's no one around. And when they came out, there were 200 strangers (laughs) (laughs) with their their chins on the floor, with their eyes popping. And she said they had to get some policemen to move them along because it was such a rare and... um, unwelcome sight there's a to give an example of how unwelcome and how how pervasive this notion was that it shouldn't be the dumb thing Mm. in 1954 there was a headline in the left-leaning picture post photo journal and the headline was would you let your daughter marry a negro Mm. That's a loaded question, is it not, Charlotte? Yeah. And the answer is definitely no. No yeah. sane person would. But to their credit, um, these men and women braved the hostility which they found they were greeted with when they made these unions. And a lot of them stayed together and they were they were kind of forged in adversity, actually.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um one of the one of my particular favourite stories is the the man, I can't remember his name, who who ended up Traveling around London on the Chew for hours because he didn't George know. Where- George
1: <laughs> Mango, yes, yes, George Mango. Yes, he, was- yeah, so he had talks about that in Guyana. There's one train line; mm. <laughs> it goes from A to B in a yeah. straight line, and so he got on the underground thinking that uh, he was going to get off at Liverpool Street. I think it was, and uh, <laughs> just was waiting and waiting and waiting and didn't realize he was on the Circle <laughs> line. Was going and round he circumnavigated the the underground three times before he he took. Courage, not the the, mm. na- the neighbour. You know, Where's um, Liverpool Street? So he got <laughs> off eventually. And what was also funny was that um, he talked about the fact that in... I mentioned the, the pace of people and life in the Caribbean. Everything's slow, right? Mm. He said that in Guyana... He was a form, former policeman. He says, in Guyana, the only, piece who, the only people who run are the people who were criminals running away from the scene of a crime (laughs) or running out of the rain. So when he gets to Liverpool Street at five o'clock in the hour, he sees all these people (laughs) running, running, running. He thinks, my God, there's so many criminals here. And and it's only when he got to his destination in in Ipswich, his uh, um, sister-in-law told him they were commuters. (laughs) <laughs> and not criminals.
2: So was, you mean it's a, quite a clash of cultures? Um... Yeah, they
1: had to do, There was a steep learning curve, mm. and and they did. It. They were also very surprised by things like outside toilets. I mean, the the, the 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 notion that these were uncivilized people coming to the civilized motherland was turned on its head when they they, they realized that the the, the combination was drafty, dirty, grimy. Mm. You had to share a toilet, and the toilets were outside. You had, to, you had to do your cooking on the landing yeah. on, on, a, on a paraffin heater. Um, they they met and were surprised by the levels of privation. Um, Derek Walcott um, is a very fine poet from St. Lucia. And I think I can quote this because it's a poem. Mm. Mm. You may have to cut it out. But Derek <laughs> Walcott said that many people were surprised by the sight of white hands doing nigger work. That's his poem, so they were surprised that there were working class white people in this country because in the Caribbean, you didn't see working class white people. you saw the the elite, mm. and somehow in their mind they th- they thought that was. Going to be the case throughout the country. Yeah, that right. was a real surprise to them.
2: And the weather, um, you know, there there seems to be so many things that you perhaps might not think about, but that must have been a big shock arriving. You know, yeah. it must have been very very cold for everybody. Yeah,
1: and the, I mean, Summerwear was mm. not alone in dressing lightly. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Mr. Summerwear, one of my my parents' friends, uh, he only had a, a tropical suit. It was difficult to get heavy heavy mm. coats in the Caribbean because there's no need for them. No. and they would have to. Borrow them from people who'd come back. So they they suffer from the cold. Um, they suffer from the lack of light. Uh, one man talks about the fact that the sky in the Caribbean is so high. But when he came to England, he thought he could jump up and touch the sky. It was so low. Mm. It was very grey and forbidding. They suddenly found themselves they'd been in this wonderful lush terrain, and now they're in these sort of concrete conurbations concrete all around them with sleet (laughs) rain Mm. monochrome dull dull you know grime for the cover of my book i've got a wonderful photograph taken by a man called howard gray and this is taken in 1962 and it shows people arriving from the caribbean at waterloo station Again, they're dressed to a point beyond distinction. Mm. They've got zoot suits, they've got hombres, they've got bow ties, they've got their Sunday best clothes if they're women, and they're looking expectant, rather nervous, but expectant. Howard Gray rushed to that station in May 1962 when the government again changed the rules with regards to immigration, the Commonwealth Immigrant Act, which made it far more difficult for Caribbean people to arrive. And he rushed down there because he knew that there had been a panic in the Caribbean that people must get to England before they closed the gates. Mm. And and he he got there and there was this great surge of people who who were waiting for the relatives, three or four hundred people at Waterloo Station, all very excited about it because also there was that kind of drama of um, of wanting to be the meter and the greeter wanting to be the person who acted as the conduit for these new arrivals. But he got there. It was a very grey May day. Waterloo Station still had on the roof the, the grime and the camouflage that would protect these buildings from German bombers in the Second World War. So it was a very dark ceiling. The walls were black. The asphalt was black, black. Howard Gray never used a flash gun. The people whose photograph he took had dark skin. He snapped away for 20 minutes, took three rolls of film, went back to his studio, looked at the negatives. Nothing was there. And then he put those negatives away in a manila envelope and there they remained for 54 years. And a few years ago, watching a BBC television programme called Click, (laughs) he saw this technology programme and it revealed how... With these new scans, you could visualise data that was invisible to the human eye. He had these images scanned three or four times for highlights, for mid-tones and for shadows, and up they popped, these wonderful, flamboyant, dramatic pictures of people arriving. And I love that idea, but also I love it as a metaphor for what's happened and what I'm trying to do. We're slowly seeing these people who have been in the shadows, in the margins, almost invisible in a way, slowly, slowly emerge to their most vibrant selves. Get in the detail. Get in the detail, actually. That's what I hope to do with this book, to get the detail right and not just to reduce everybody to the clichés, to the kind of generic idea um, that we had of people. But I think actually Caribbean people not just brought life, but brought colour. A kind of a cliche in itself, but they brought vibrancy they brought Technicolor to this monochrome world. And I'll tell you how I know this. So, my mother, and this is true of many people, my mother, my Jamaican mother, always wanted to return to the Caribbean. And this is another thing that surprised me, how they resolved this dilemma. Because what happens, they come with a plan. They don't really come with a plan, but they say, we'll stick it out for five years. Yeah. We'll stick it out for five years, we'll save some money, and we'll go back. But the five years becomes 10, the 10 becomes 15. And one day you wake up to the side of your parents changing the wallpaper in the hallway. And then you know you are here to stay. So my parents didn't go back. But when I was in the BBC a few years ago, I convinced the BBC to let me go back with my mother. She hadn't been back for 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know this J.P. Hartley phrase, the past is another country. I think people realise that the past, they were trying to hold on to had gone. Maybe that's why they didn't want to go back. They wanted to hold on to this nostalgic image that they had in their head. Mm. And my mother didn't really want to go back. She spent a lot of time wanting to go back because every Friday we would get the Gleaner delivered to our house, the Jamaican Gleaner newspaper to our house in Luton. And on the back of the Gleaner, there were adverts of plots of land that you could buy in Jamaica Mm. and architectural drawings of homes that could be built on those plots of land. And every Friday afternoon, my mum would take a pencil and she'd mark that advert, we're oh. going back, we're going back. Yeah. We never went back. But 40 years after she arrived, I persuaded her to go back. And Charlie, I tell you, when that plane landed and she st- stood on jamaican soil i saw a transformation really she was looser she was funny she was laughing her head off all the time she was singing her father had been a policeman and as a child she remembers accompanying him to the remand centers and to the general penitentiary, the the massive jail in kingston and she started to sing the song about the G.P. the General Penitentiary. Dear <laughs> G.P., that's the place for me. So she was much more colourful. Yeah, she was drawing on all of the colours available to her palette, mm. and I thought, wow, because in England I'd witnessed her growing growing up. I'd witnessed this woman, obviously, and I could see that she had vibrancy, but it was rather reduced. I thought she felt rather restricted by by England, about what England expected of her. Yeah. And so she reduced her own expectation of herself. But in Jamaica, she flourished briefly again. And I thought, wow, it was lovely, but also a little bit sad because yeah. I thought, well, what would she have been like if she had remained? Would she have been operating at 100% mm-hmm. all of the time yeah. rather than the 40 or 50% of her capacity uh in which she worked, I feel, or in which she revealed herself in this country. Yeah. So there's a little bit of sadness there.
2: That was something I, that struck me as well. That, and also um, I found quite sad were the people saying that they didn't really feel that they fitted in England, and, but when they returned to Jamaica, they didn't feel that they fitted there either, so they were sort of a bit yeah. lost.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been the dilemma. Something I want to write about next, actually, this sort of state of living in a temporary...
2: Like a limbo type, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, this liminal state, neither here nor there, neither fish nor fowl. Because, I mean, the children, I felt that. I, didn't, yeah. I mean, especially I'm old enough to remember a man called um, Enoch Powell, mm. um, encouraging um, the notion that we should go back, not to Luton where I'm from, but to some other place where, where I've never been. <laughs> yeah. um, so we were, we felt in this limbo for quite a while. But equally, these Caribbean people, felt in a limbo, these adults felt in a limbo, because when they do go back now, they're not really considered to be Caribbean anymore. They're they're British.
0: That was Colin Grant. Colin's book, Homecoming, Voices of the Windrush Generation, is out now, published by Jonathan Cape. He also wrote a feature on this subject for the January issue of BBC History Revealed. That's on sale now and also features articles on Prohibition, the Great Wall of China and medieval mythical beasts. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Sophie Ambler will be discussing Simon de Montfort.